This is Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. In your pew Bibles, it's on page 780. This is Isaiah's description of our Messiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was, has put him to death when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord for his people. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the pastor here. And this morning I get the privilege of explaining what was just read to us. But before I do that, let's ask the Lord to open our hearts. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask you to help us to understand what we hear. Father, we also ask you to help us to believe what we understand. And Father, we ask you to help us to live what we believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for that. Obviously, you're here, many of you, because it's Easter. 
And Easter is the most important day in the Christian uh, life and uh, calendar for the church. Obviously, uh, Christmas is an important uh, time and season and day because it is on that day we celebrate the incarnation that God didn't just stand back and watch his creation ruin. Instead, because he loved the world, he entered the world in order to save it, to rescue it. And because of that, we celebrate Christmas. But Christmas has no meaning apart from Good Friday, when we celebrate the death of Jesus on the cross, the way in which he's decided to rescue all of creation, including humanity, was to die for it in its place. And we celebrate that. But in order to prove that rescue worked, that salvation really happened, three days after he was crucified, he rose from the dead to prove that we are rescued, that the world is saved, that his creation is redeemed. And that's what Easter is for us. But Easter is full for us with many, many different uh, uh, celebrations and understanding. But that's why we recognize that Christ has risen and the people respond. Okay, because you didn't know that was coming, you didn't do a very good job. On Easter, we celebrate not good clothes, not a decent meal, but that Christ has risen. Much better. We're in the midst, if you don't go to EP or you're not here regularly, we're in the middle of doing a Renew series because we believe that the, not only did Christ prove our rescue through his resurrection, he literally became the first fruits of a renewed life. That even Christ Jesus was made new after the resurrection and he became the first fruit of our own renewed life. And so we've been going through a process together to understand what renew means for us individually and for our community. Because we believe as we are being renewed by the gospel, we can see the renewal of Annapolis. Now, in order to recognize that we have hundreds of people here this morning that are not here on a regular basis, I chose a text that's not going to be in your Bible study. It's going to have the themes that that are important for Easter and the death of Christ, but it's not the one that's in your Bible study. This one is in the chapter uh, 53 of Isaiah's book, his prophecy. And Isaiah 53 is part of two chapters that are brought together by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was even born to explain the rescue plan what the Messiah came to do. So it's an interpretation, it's a meaning, it is an explanation of why there was an incarnation and why ultimately there's a death and a resurrection. And so we're going to look at just one of those two. I am going to refer a little bit to 52 because there is a transition between 52 and 53, but we're going to spend our time in Isaiah chapter 53. It is the most famous Old Testament text that is referred by 
most or many of the New Testament writers. In fact, it is the most quoted Old Testament writing in the New Testament. And that's how important Isaiah's work in specifically Isaiah 52 and 53. Again, it explains that everything that you read in the New Testament as to why Jesus came 700 years before he was born. The ancient Jews that would have received this text and the ancient Jews of Jesus' day would have had two anticipations or two things they had become accustomed to. The first one was oppression. They knew oppression and they expected oppression. They were first oppressed by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, then by the Greeks, and then at the time of Christ by the Romans. And so they expected that they would be at the foot of some oppressor. The other thing that they became accustomed to or the other thing that became anticipating for was that eventually a rescuer, a king would come along politically and remove those oppressors and they would never be oppressed again. So with that in mind, that's what we're understanding here of one who would come. Here's the problem, though. And the text have so many contradictions. When I mean contradictions, they are these paradoxes that are not explained by human rules of interpretation. We cannot understand these paradoxes if we are going to use our normal means of understanding how things work. Because they are upside down. And because they're upside down, we tend to dismiss them as non-important, but they are essential to understanding the gospel. Take, for example, the text itself. A king is going to come, and he describes him not as this victorious political leader, but a suffering servant, one who dies for the people. The greatest paradox that we tend to to associate will be illuminated in this text, but there are many others that we know about. And simply a paradox is something that's inexplicable or understandable by our rules of understanding. And one of them is, can you imagine you're there waiting for the anticipated Messiah and many people have gathered at the entrance gate to Jerusalem and the king is supposed to be coming, but he comes on a borrowed donkey. What king can afford a horse? Can you imagine their expectation and what comes is beyond their anticipation of what that king would be? But not only is that true, but within one week's time, this king who got great cheers by the people will hear jeers for his execution. The very same people. Not only is that true... But we anticipate in history that kings have subjects who die for them. If you are a subject of a king, you are expected to sacrifice everything for the king, for his kingdom, including your very life. But amazingly, that's not what happens here. We don't have the subjects dying for the king. We have the king dying for the subjects. Where have you ever heard that in human history? That in order to save the kingdom, the king dies for the subjects rather than the other way around. This text illuminates this concept that is an amazing paradox for us to try to understand. And that is that the beauty of God is made vivid. That is the clearest to us at the moment that beauty is marred. 
Now try to put your mind around that, that the beauty of God, the glory of God is primarily seen when that beauty and glory is stripped away. When that beauty and glory is at its ugliness. That is just beyond my imagination, and I I think it's beyond ours, and that's why we can't treat this story ho-hum, because that's what happens. And because of that, this text will be received in one of two ways this morning, just like it was received one of two ways when Jesus fulfilled it, and one of two ways when it was first read or heard by the people in Isaiah's time. One is to hear about the suffering servant as a pitiful person. Many people read Isaiah 53 and hear this about the Messiah, though our rescuer, and think he's a pitiful human being. Not in the sense of that we pity him because he's the king who is overwhelmed, but simply because he chose the way to save us was the way for his own death. But others will see Jesus as the most beautiful person they have ever beheld because of this. One of the two ways Jesus will be received today. One of these two ways he was received in the first century. And one of these two ways he was received in Isaiah's time. And so this morning, I just want us in the, in the time that we have to contemplate three paradoxes. Remember, a paradox is something that is given to us by our own rules of interpretation. It's inexplicable. There's no way to explain it unless we adopt a different set of rules for the way that the world works. The very first one is this idea of strength through weakness. Look at Isaiah 52, verse 13. If you have your Bibles with you, it's just in the paragraph right before, and I'm trying to make a transition into 53 because they are supposed to be, and at one time, did go together. We separated them uh, in order to find these verses. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Some of your translations will say that my servant will prosper. It's trying to get at a Hebrew word that is very difficult for us to translate. It literally means to succeed. That my servant will succeed. Another way to understand it is that my servant will triumph. And the way that it transitions into Isaiah 53 verse 1 is that the arm of the Lord shall be revealed. The word arm really means power and strength of the Lord. And so as you begin to understand the opening of Isaiah 53 is of this servant who's got power, who's going to succeed, one who will be triumphant because of his strength. But I want you to understand Isaiah from that moment on will begin to describe this powerful, triumphant servant who will succeed as one who is slain. In fact, Jesus triumphs by being slain. Verse 5, he's pierced, he's crushed, he's punished. It is in his marring lies the secret to the healing of the world. Death gives birth to life. There can be no Easter without First, a Good Friday. 
You and I live in a very affluent culture, and because of that, we struggle with making understanding and sense out of the suffering that we see. We look in our community and we see terrible suffering. We have a people who literally do not have enough food in our community to make it through the weekend. And so we literally have to prepare food for them to take home from school because school can only give them food for Monday through Friday, but not for the weekend. We have people in our community that it is more profitable for them to quit school and hang out on corners and to sell drugs than it is to get a job. And because of that, they find their lives ultimately destroyed, often in prison or dead. In our own community, there are people who are suffering sociologically, economically, psychologically, socially. We are struggling as a culture in a community, and we don't even have to talk about the whole country. We can just talk about our own city. We don't know what to do with that. We don't know how to interpret that. We don't know how to get our minds around that. And then if that suffering happens to come into my life, I have no category for that. And so as a result, many of us, when we see suffering coming into our world, we begin to say, God must have left the building. Where is God when I hurt? Somehow he must be too busy on the other side of the planet to notice that we are suffering. Or more importantly, I am suffering. Because, quite frankly, as long as it's someone else, we don't have to live it. We don't have to experience it. We don't have to deal with it. But when it comes into our lives, personally, that's when we struggle. The truth of the matter is, no matter what you're experiencing or what you are seeing, God is never closer than when you suffer, than his creations. The very fact of the incarnation proves that God is not a clockmaster who is standing back and hoping that everything works out, that eventually human beings will get their act together and make this a better place. We've had thousands upon thousands of years to get our acts together. And we have failed at every turn, whether we're willing to admit it or not. That's why we needed a redeemer. We needed someone to come in our place and make this world healed. That's why Jesus came. But in order to understand a little bit about suffering, you and I have to make this admission. That suffering is not natural. In case you missed what I just said, there is no circle of life. The Lion King got it wrong. Disney missed it. You are not going to die as part of life. Death is an interruption of life. And that was meant never to happen. It happens because something has profoundly gone wrong with the world. And therefore, whenever you experience the loss, the grief, It is an unnatural experience. All you have to do is to be in presence of the dead. And you know something has gone wrong here. Particularly if the person is particularly young and healthy before they die. You know that's not the way it was meant to be. And therefore, something's gone wrong. 
Something is terribly wrong. Jesus shows that to us when he's at his friend's tomb, Lazarus, and he cries. Why in the world do we believe that God is in Christ, that God and, and man come together in Jesus Christ? How come God cries at death if it's natural? The word there when it says that he's troubled literally means that he was groaning so deep in his being that he was shouting his anger at death because it took his friend. And if he knew that he was going to raise him from the dead, if he knew that it was just natural, then why the tears? And the answer to the question is that that is wrong. The right interpretation of death, the right interpretation of suffering is that it is not natural. We feel it. We don't always intellectually adopt it. And so we live this schizophrenic life until suffering comes to us. But know this. Though suffering, though death is not natural... God has decided to do something about it and rescue us from it. He has come to heal all things and make all things new, including your suffering and your death. About time. Because if you can't get excited about that, go play golf. And you could probably get to the restaurants before the rest of us if you leave now. Good Friday is part of the story of Easter. That death brings life. That weakness is the incubator by which our lives become healed and new. This is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It records where Paul talks about this thorn in his flesh, this problem that he has. And we don't know what it is. Anybody who tells you they know what it is, they don't know what it is. They weren't there. And it doesn't say in the text. We've all guessed. But we can know this about whatever that is. He says, a thorn in my flesh that God has given me, literally says, God gave me. It's irritating. It's bothersome. It literally is painful and probably sometimes hindered the mission. And yet God left it with him. Paul says, I pleaded three times that this thorn in my flesh, this irritating, painful problem that might be hindering what I believe is necessary for the mission. Please, God, get rid of it. Imagine how effective I could be if I didn't have this thing in my life. Paul says, God answered, no, I don't want it out of you because I'm using it in you. Because, Paul, you need the taste of death in your life so that real life can come to you. See, we tend to think that suffering and death are in our lives and, and, and it has no purpose at all. And it does have a purpose. Though it is unnatural, does not mean it doesn't have a purpose. The word given in that text that Paul is so painfully making us aware that he prays that it'll be removed, but he says that God has given it to me. That word given means grace. It's the same word. So Paul is literally saying, God graced me with this thorn. Paul's life 
because of this ongoing struggle that he had with pride. You can't have pride when, when you're walking around as the suffering. Where death is part of your being. All of us are experiencing death. It's just to different degrees. Some of us, it's a low-grade fever for us. Though we know someday we will die, we know it's probably not today. And so it's a low-grade fever. Others, it's a raging fire. Because there's not but a matter of days, months, or years, and then we will die. And Paul wants you to know that doesn't happen by accident. That God uses that for life. Because there's no other path to the resurrection than through death. And that's the first paradox that we need to consider. That God has decided that the way to bring hope and salvation, what we're calling success and truth and prosperity in Isaiah 53, he says comes through weakness. First in our own weakness. But also in the weakness that Jesus chose. A cross, death, suffering himself. And so the second paradox I want you to consider is this idea of beauty through ugliness. If the first one is is strength through weakness, here is the idea of beauty through ugliness. First began by the transition from 52 to 53. Verse 14 of 52 says, As many were astonished at you, talking about the Messiah who is to come, his appearance was so marred, It was beyond human semblance. What he's saying there is that Jesus, at some point, the torture that his body will undergo will be so marring that he won't look like a human anymore. He goes on and says, in his form beyond that of children of mankind. He won't even look human. Isaiah 53, 2. There was no beauty that we should desire him and no majesty that would attract us to him. The marring was so bad, we wouldn't want to see him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and, he, and we esteemed him not. Back in Isaiah 52, verse 15, it uses the word sprinkle there. Don't think of it as sprinkle in the sense of a baptism, but there was a decontamination rite that Jews had for lepers. When you got victory or you had some kind of miraculous healing of leprosy or some unexplained healing of leprosy, you had to go through a decontamination before you could return to worship. And what they did to you is that they... they They covered your body over and over again with water to symbolize that God was responsible for the healing in your life. And what that says about Jesus is that on the cross, his skin literally hung in shreds from the brutality of the Roman soldiers that they had inflicted on him before his crucifixion. So that his skin appeared like someone who was suffering from leprosy. In chapter 53 says we were appalled at that. No one wanted to look on him because of that. Literally, his appearance 
would nauseate us. The most beautiful event in human history, the most grand and glory turn of human history, when all things are made new, would make us want to vomit if we were present. We don't tend to think of the cross that way. We've sanitized it to the point that it's stained and varnished and looks like something you want to put in a church. When in reality, the true event would make us want to throw up because of the appearance of our Savior. The marring of His beauty is the essence of His beauty. We want to separate it and sanitize it and miss that He chose to become unbeautiful, disbeautied, in order that we might become beauty, who were once ugly. And that's so counterintuitive to us. We don't have a way to explain that. It's such a paradox to us. And the way that often shows up is the way in which we see each other, particularly those of us who offend or irritate us. People who are not like us, people who don't look like us, act like us, aren't from the same socioeconomic background, same education. Because of that, they tend, we tend to not be very optimistic to them. We're pessimistic about their futures. We're pessimistic about them. Because we have categories, don't we? Us and them. <laughs> we impulsively, thank you, we impulsively look down. Presbyterians aren't used to talking. <laughs> But that's helpful. We impulsively look down on those who are not like us. And that is an error because imagine if God did that to us. We are prone to put people in our categories. We divide people into good people and bad people, winners and losers, beautiful and unattractive. C.S. Lewis gets at that in the Screw Tape Letters. If you've never read that, it's a short book. It doesn't take you long. It's a story about a Christian who is being uh, afflicted uh, by Wormwood, who's a demon, a young junior demon, but his uncle is his superior who gets give, keeps giving him pointers on how to deal with this young believer. Before he becomes a believer, the goal of the demon is to keep him from becoming a believer. But when this particular client becomes a believer, it, the the uh, the screw tape, which is the uncle, goes to Wormwood and says, don't worry, it's not all lost. He can still not love God and love people if we can just get him to church. C.S. Lewis says that the greatest ally of Satan is the church. He says just get Christians to look at other Christians and begin to form categories and places for them. And as soon as he meets real Christians, he's going to realize, I don't want to be part of them, and leaves the church. That's C.S. Lewis's words, not mine. Where it is true. God uses amazingly ordinary people. God uses those in the categories that are often, we think, are not us. We tend to wonder, why would God use this person this greatly and not me? In fact, you could probably list all the people who came from means, people born on third base, people who have made it in life, and, and you look at them and you could probably name them on a few fingers. 
I could give you dozens, if not hundreds of people who don't come from that kind of background, who come from brokenness, who come from ugliness, and God profoundly uses them. And if you want an explanation, I don't have one. Other than somehow he gets more glory from doing that because he gets more credit from doing that because we can't say in any way that it was us. You look at the people just of the Bible. Moses has this terrible speech impediment. Of all things, he gets to be a spokesman for God. Who picks a person like that? He also has this tremendous social anxiety because he doesn't want to speak on behalf into crowds. So that's why God sends his uh, Aaron with him. Not only do you have Moses, you have Aaron at times as a terrible husband by anybody's stretch of the imagination. He gives his wife away twice to save his life. Jacob is a pathological liar. How in the world could God use a pathological liar? At least until he repents. God doesn't wait till then because if he waits till then, nobody will ever be used. Because he's not asking us to clean up our lives and then be redeemed. He redeems and then, through the work of the Holy Spirit, begins to clean our lives. And the truth of the matter is, most of us will die before that task is completed. Rahab is a frightened prostitute. Imagine she saves the people of Israel. Mary, this teenage mother of Jesus who is not married at the time, imagine how she is used by God. And imagine her whole life, her her beautiful child who grows up is constantly being made fun of because everybody knows Joseph is not his father. In the ancient world, where that is not just unacceptable, it's disqualifying. Paul, the persecutor of the church, he's probably a murderer. And he becomes the second most important person in human history after Jesus. You just go on and on. Uh, John Calvin, and and, and you can talk about uh, 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 Isaac Watts, and you can can talk about uh, John Newton and William Cowper and the Wesley brothers, and you can come into the United States and you can talk about David Brainerd, who gets kicked out of the seminary before he even begins ministry. He becomes the father of American missions. Every missionary in the United States that's ever been sent traces his heritage, his lineage to David Brainerd in his little autobiography, his diary. Or Jonathan Edwards, his patron, who gets kicked out of the only church he's ever pastor of. And it just goes on and on through history. Uh, Billy Graham comes out of poverty. And renowned in the world for the preaching of the gospel. And not to put myself in that that category, but you think about the scared little boy with all of the insecurities is preaching to you today. This is what the great theologian Bono said. I'm sort of kidding. He does say amazing things, and this is one of them. It's in one of the lyrics of his song. He says, grace makes beauty out of ugly things. If I could just turn that just a little bit. Grace makes beauty out of ugly people. 
I'm sorry if that insults you. But that's the way the gospel is. That's why it's so inexplicable. In order to receive it, you have to admit it. The gospel can only be good news if the bad news is really bad. You are ugly, but you've been made beautiful. If you can't swallow that, you can't swallow Christianity because ugly is the raw material grace uses to make beauty. Grace would not be necessary if ugly didn't exist. And that's the second paradox for us this morning. Is that not only did the most beautiful being that has ever graced this planet become ugly in order that those that were ugly could become beautiful. Third, love through the unlovely. This is the greatest paradox of them all. The cross tells me that I am loved not just at my very best, but at my very worst. That's what Paul means in Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while I was still a sinner. He's not saying at my best, get myself as cleaned up as close as possible to heaven and then he'll finish the task. He says, come as you are. And if we come as we are, then we are sinners in need of a savior. Isaiah 53 puts it this way in verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is a hurdle here for anyone who thinks they are superior to anybody else. Because Paul also says, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The cross is the description of us at our very worst. And we have two options when we hear that. We can blame shift and blame the person in the pew next to us. Or we can fall on our face and say, busted, exposed. God, I need you. Save me. Isaiah is a case study of all of this. He's in the temple and he sees just the robe. Just the train of the robe. The closest you can get is to a wedding gown where the train of the wedding gown is extremely long. This one is so mind-boggling long that it literally fills the entirety of the temple. And that causes the angels who are present to cover their eyes and their feet because even though they are holy, they're not as holy as the being who is present. So other, so different that they have to cover their eyes and they cover their feet. But what's that poor little sinner that gets to see this do? Woe is me. I am unclean. My lips are unclean. And please understand, he's not saying the worst parts of me are dirty. Because Isaiah is the spokesman for God. He's saying the best part of me is unclean. And therefore, the best parts of me need to be redeemed as much as the worst. And so here's the point, whether I am Mother Teresa or I am a prostitute, I stand in the same place. I fall short of the mark 
because we tend to compare ourselves with the other people in the pew with us. As long as we're better than them, we've got to be further along. We've got to be better. But God's perspective is there really are two sides. All of humanity on one side and God on the other. Isaiah realized that in Isaiah 6 and said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Save me. And so from God's perspective, as far as the sin is concerned, there's no difference between the missionary and the child molester. Even though we see the difference in its effect here on the world. The big problem in this world is as much inside me as it is outside me. And this is hard to hear. I know that. And so I need to call on another theologian, Jack Nicholson. And when he's in the few good men, he says the one thing everyone in this room needs to hear. And that is, you can't handle the truth. Because if we could, we wouldn't constantly be trying to clean ourselves up and making ourselves presentable to God who says you can't clean up enough. Because one drop of the impurity and guilt of sin makes it necessary for me to send someone on the outside to come into the inside and save you. That's what explains why we're so driven as human beings. It explains why we're so defensive when somebody points out that we're imperfect. Something deep down tells us that we're supposed to be flawless. We're supposed to be blameless. We're supposed to be pure on the inside and the outside. But we know we're not even if we won't admit it to ourselves. And so we create these images for people to see so that we can project this perfection so that nobody finds out, and especially us. We know there's something more than this. And the greatness that we were meant to have is just beyond our grasp. And that's why you and I need a rescue. And that's the meaning of the cross, that someone came who was pure, was perfect, was holy, came and took our place and received all of the wrath, all of the, all of the punishment that was due sin on himself and drank it to the dregs so there would not be one drop for us to drink. This is the great exchange. Jesus takes our punishment and we get his favor. The way that the New Testament talks about it is that he who knew no sin became sin. You know what's not said there but is implied? He who knew sin became holy, became acceptable, became beautiful, became lovely. And you say, this is not fair. I'll tell you the same thing I tell my children. There's nothing in this life that's fair. Why do we think that God's going to be fair? Because it is incredibly unfair to take our sin and put it on Jesus. But it was the only way to save it. If there was any other way, we have this argument all the time. I wish there was another way. So do I. So did Jesus when he said, take this cup from me. If there was another way. Let me give you a modern illustration and we'll we'll, we'll get to near the end. I know you're just waiting. My granddaughters love Beauty and the Beast. Well, one of them does. If you ask her, what movie do you want her, she wants to watch? She wants to watch the old Beauty and Beast. When I say that, they've made a modern adaptation of it. But she loves that movie. But Penny, who does not like that movie, she says, Pops, it's too scary. She says that because there's an ugly beast that nobody wants to see. 
He's horrible. He's horrible to people. He's horrible to Belle, who's the beauty. But the end of the movie, he's laying there in all of his ugliness, expiring. Another word, euphemism for dying. And Belle walks over to him and she tells him she loves him and she gives him a kiss and that transforms him into a handsome prince. I want to tell you that the cross is beauty and the beast with a twist. Jesus is Belle, the beauty, who kisses the beast. If you haven't got it, that's us. And turns us into something beautiful. But here's the twist. Not only is Jesus Belle, but Jesus becomes the beast in order that we might become beauty. That is so much better than beauty and the beast. How heroic is the cross to you? Dying for others is heroic, but it is not unique. It's impressive, but it is not uncommon. Military men and women have been doing that for centuries. First responders still do it. They run to the fire rather than from the fire. You know what the difference is between our military and first responders? Jesus is the only person who ever chose to die. Before you jump on me, military and first responders, they choose when to die. They choose how to die. They choose where to die, but they do not choose to die because everyone dies. The mortality rate on human beings is 100%. They never choose whether to die. Only Jesus ever did that because he was the only one in which death had no claim. Because he was perfect. He was holy. He did everything the way it was meant to be done. He loved the Lord and his God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his strength and all of his mind. And he loved his neighbor as himself. We don't do that. And so death attacks and wins all of us. It has a right to every one of us. But not to Jesus. He had to volunteer his death. 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord... To crush him. You hear that? It was his will. He poured out his soul, verse 12, to death. It wasn't taken from him. Jesus' death was completely voluntary. He chose to die. I lay my life on my own account. He loved God and neighbor perfectly. But he also didn't do it begrudgingly. His point of view is that you are worth it. Not because you are worthy, but because he died for you, you were worth it. The only illustration I can come up with that even closer to that are you mothers who go through, in my opinion, personally haven't experienced it. It's just a testimony for other women. It's the most traumatic moment in a mother's life. Most excruciating, painful, bloody moment in a woman's life. But once that baby arrives, once that nurse, once that doctor places that baby in that mother's arm, what does she say? It's worth it. I guarantee you if a man had to do that, there would be only one child born in the world. We would just all have to share. The king of glory considers you his prize. What difference would it make if we believe that? That we were God's prize. He's not mad at you. He's no longer angry with you. He's no longer got a list of things you have perturbed him over. 
because Jesus died for all of those, he's got no list. You are his beloved bride. He loves you even though we were unlovely. And he loved us so that because the unlovely to make us beautiful. That's the greatest paradox of all, isn't it? Why in the world would God love the unlovely? I don't have an explanation for that. And if you do, it either had to be a revelation from God or you made it up. Because it doesn't tell us other than he loved us. It's almost like Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Let me tell you the ways that I love you. To the height and depth. Just a bunch of bubbly goo. No real reason. I do. Because I do. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beautiful people that are here that, that are yours. You love them. While we were unlovely. It was through your weakness you saved us. It was because we were ugly. You took that raw material and you made something beautiful through the death of your son. May we celebrate that. May we believe it. And because of that, may we live it. So that the world will see that and want it. Like a good restaurant where there's great food. May people see that we are merely beggars begging people to come where there's food. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.